0: This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more. If you collected baseball cards as a kid and long ago tucked them away in the attic, you might want to do some digging because sports cards and memorabilia have grown into a multi-billion dollar business. Last year, several cards alone fetched seven figures including a 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle and a 2003 LeBron James Rookie Patch Autograph, each of which sold for $5.2 million. Also, a 1979 Wayne Gretzky Rookie changed hands for $3.75 million. But the top sale last year belonged to a century-old Honus Wagner card, which sold for $6.6 million. Welcome to Barron's The Way Forward podcast. I'm Greg Bartalis, and today we have an exceptionally special guest, Howard Epstein. He's a Charlotte, North Carolina-based wealth management advisor and lifelong sports memorabilia consultant and expert. Uh, His professional career spans banking, insurance, and financial services, and he's promoted sports cards and memorabilia shows for over three decades. Howard will discuss an opportunity for wealth management firms that he characterizes as, quote, immense, highly significant, and virtually untapped, end quote. He will also explain where the market is, how we got here, and where he thinks it's headed.
1: Howard, welcome. Thank you, Greg, I appreciate the opportunity
0: to be here and speak with your uh, listeners today. Excellent, well thank you so much for joining. Um, Before we uh, discuss the opportunity, tell us a little more about yourself and describe the state of the sports memorabilia market today.
1: Well, as you mentioned, I'm a lifelong sports card and memorabilia enthusiast with a passion for the hobby. I have been a collector, a dealer, investor, show promoter, appraiser, and consultant. I had previously run sports card shows like you mentioned in three different decades. I was an inaugural member of the National Card Collectors Association. I was a co-founder and past president of the South Florida Card Collectors Association and I possessed one of the largest collections of price guides, periodicals, and books on collecting sports cards and memorabilia dating back to the 1940s. In my professional career, as you mentioned, I It spans banking, insurance, and financial services. I've been a finance manager for a large bank. I ran my own insurance agency for 18 years. and Currently, I'm an inside advisor for a wealth management firm and have a Series 7 and 66 license along with my insurance licenses that I maintain and have a spotless U4 record. Uh, As far as the uh, condition of the market right now, obviously, uh, since the pandemic started, it's really started to boom but really it's been booming for probably five or 10 years. It's just that the pandemic really picked up the pace. In my paper, which we'll discuss, which I actually wrote just prior to the pandemic, um, as you know, when the pandemic began, most professionals were and may still be working from home. With extra time on their hands, they were uh, seeing reports of high dollar sales, which you'd mentioned, and found their old collections and began to submit to the grading services. This overwhelmed the services and then they ended up uh, shutting down their submissions for collectors. And a little prior to that, in April of 2020, the ESPN series, The Last Dance, on Michael Jordan's last championship aired, which really ignited the hobby even more, especially for high-end Jordan memorabilia. Mm -hmm. His PSA rookie card, for example, graded a 10 prior to the pandemic was trading around $20,000. During the pandemic, it traded as high as about $850,000, even today, it has retreated, is still trading in the two dollars to $300,000 range, 10 times more than pre-pandemic. Everything of Michael Jordan's has increased, jerseys, sneakers, and cards. Even a debut full ticket graded a 6 out of 10 recently sold for $264,000, which is astronomical. Big money has flowed into the hobby, not only in the sales of items, but the new companies that are forming fractional share ownership companies, for example, which I know we'll cover later. High net worth business executives and professional athletes are getting involved in the hobby as well. The pandemic has opened up and increased the speed of the hobby, becoming a go-to alternative investment like the art market has been for years. eBay alone sold more sports cars in the first quarter of 2021 than all of 2020 combined. The hobby is increasing at an increasing rate.
0: Well... Tell us now about the opportunity uh, detailed in your white paper, because you, you just described the macro landscape very well, and, I, and, and later let's talk about the third party grading, which you alluded to, because a lot of people may not be familiar with that, and it's exceptionally important to the hobby, um, but, but speak about this opportunity. Well, when
1: I wrote my white paper, I was thinking, how could I help these uh, clients at the wealth management firms? And I thought that you know there are tens of millions of collectors of sports-related memorabilia in the United States, and it was reasonable to assume that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, that are wealth management clients. It also stands to reason that the clients who have more disposable income have greater collections that are more valuable than the average collector. It seems unreasonable to overlook this potential revenue stream and obvious customer retention service. What happens generally is when someone—that's a wealth management client who perhaps may have a nice collection—either uh, passes away or ages out and wants to get rid of their collection, may not know the avenue to to do that best, uh, especially in a death situation. And you know, people die from hundreds of different things, and usually it's the male who's the collector in the family. So the the wife in this situation doesn't necessarily know where to go to uh, liquidate their collections, assuming they wanna do that. Most of the wives uh, over the years I've spoken to are saying, I can't wait until I can get rid of this stuff so I can get my room back. So there's a a need for somebody like myself doing that at these firms, I think, because it will help these uh, clients uh, liquidate for a higher price than they could get locally. Usually a local person will get 10 or 20 cents on the dollar when they go into a, either a local shop or contact somebody that's advertising locally in the paper versus getting as much as possibly 90% uh, going through the auction house uh, that I have many contacts with already. So it's a really, it's a win-win situ, win-win-win situation for the client, the advisor, and the firm itself because the, the client who gets more money for their collection uh, is obviously happy and there's a, a citing in the paper that says that uh, 70% of um, spouses that have a spouse that passes away leaves the firm within one year of the uh, the other spouse passing away. So not everyone's going to have a collection. We understand that. But the people that do and we help uh, through the uh, firm will most likely not leave the firm in those situations. And it's not just people that have collections. You have uh, clients who inherit uh, collections from you know uh, people that pass away, and in some cases, is, in some cases, they don't know you know what they've got on their hands. So that happens a lot too. It's not just people who collect; it's people that may inherit something as well. And it's not a ho- necessarily a large collection. It may be something just a few pieces, but it may be very special pieces that they would uh, best find out about uh, through something like this program, which would benefit them. The, the bottom line is that uh, it's a win-win-win situation. I know that uh, advisors look for two things primarily with their clients. One, to financially look after the well-being of their client and their assets. And two, to increase their, owner, their own assets under management. This program helps the advisor with both, those, uh, both of those for clients who may have a need. And so I certainly would welcome any C-suite executive at a wealth management firm to reach out to me to discuss how I can help with their clients.
0: Is it really about 10, 20% on the dollar? I mean, I, I've even heard of far worse than that Is, uh, in terms of- It could yeah, be. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it could be. It really depends on the situation. Um, I had a situation just this morning that I was discussing with a, an attorney here in town that had a collection that I was looking over. And she had mentioned to me that she had brought some cards over to one of the local shops and the shop owner, and they were uh, 1939 play ball cards. And on the back of those cards, there's two different versions. There's a all caps version for the player themselves and the, just the first letter of their, uh, and their first initial of their first and last name as a different version. And the owner of the shop said that uh, he thought some of those were fake. And I don't know that this was a situation where he really did, didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, or it was something that he was maybe going to try to buy at at one of those 10 or 20 cents on the dollar deals. Mm -hmm. So I can't say, but this, this stuff happens weekly. I mean, you hear locally, um, not locally, but nationally, you hear of these high dollar sales or this guy, uh, a couple of years ago, this guy, uncle Jimmy was in the paper. He was 97 years old. He passed away up North. He didn't have any children, never married. And he left his, uh, collection to his nieces and nephews. They ended up selling it uh, for over $2 million. So those are the things you hear about. It's the things you don't hear about that are out there that happen on a weekly basis that can, you know, help their clients, you know, in this situation, because it happens a lot. You just don't hear about it. Right,
0: right. So let's widen the lens now, and um, I think you, you've described that exceptionally well. The, the opportunity. Now let's talk a little more about the, the hobby, which is really a business now. Hobby's almost quaint, right? Given given where it is with the dollar amount, um, like the art market, you know, sports cards and memorabilia are definitely seen as more as a viable um, alternative investment. Um, given where interest rates are, stock valuations. I mean, tell me more about. Uh, you know, for people looking to diversify beyond traditional asset classes, um, you know, where where these uh, fit in the whole invest, investment spectrum?
1: Well, I see uh, the, the sports memorabilia, sports cards and memorabilia market has really started to take off, uh, like I said, in the last five or 10 years. And I think a lot of these um, uh, high net worth people are looking at this market and seeing where they can diversify. You know, they've been diversifying into the art market for years. Uh, there's issues with the art market itself, and I'm not an art expert by any means, uh, but I know that there were some forgeries years ago, things like that. So and it's also difficult sometimes to store those items where these are smaller items, usually, especially cards or small items. You can keep them in a safety deposit box and things like that. They are gradable, and so they're certified as to what they're graded at. And there's we can talk about the grading company soon. Um, so there's a lot of, um, advantages to having these and people love sports. I mean, in general, people just love sports. You know, if you go over someone's house, uh, they may have a painting, maybe you like it, whatever, but usually people are involved with sports. And if you have a 1952 Mickey Mantle card, you can pull it out because it's been in the news and say, look, here's what I got. I got one of these cards and it's graded maybe a seven or eight or whatever. And it's a valuable item so things uh things are looking up in the market people are just uh craving these things and there's a scarcity to these things because there's an infinite there's not an infinite uh market obviously it's a finite market and it's um
0: there's a nostalgic element too as well i mean if you buy let's say precious metal either physical or an etf it's simply the metal There's really no strings attached but with 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 cards with memorabilia there could be memories attached it might remind someone of their childhood etc and it's situated in a in an era so it's a part of americana really as well it, it kind of tr- it transcends the investment world in, in a few ways um i i would i did want to point out something that i found extremely interesting about cards is and memorabilia is that although they are an alternative asset they really trade in many ways uh behave like stocks um you know for current athletes the prices of their items generally reflect their popularity, um, their performance, and then expectations—you know, their, their future promise. But again, with 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 vintage, rather, uh, which are you know older, some people say 1975 before, et cetera. Um, it, it's a different risk-reward, right? You're looking at if you buy uh, an established hall of famer, um, their numbers are in the books. Um, it not might not skyrocket overnight. It certainly won't, but it's a little bit of a safer uh, a bet. Um, can you just tell me a little about that and also how, what led to the um, junk wax era, w- whereby in the past, traditionally, um, scarcity was a byproduct. It was really an organic process. They made, the, no one thought about it in the 40s, 50s, about preserving them. They just treated them willy-nilly. Hence, it's hard to find them in great condition. Um, and then more recently, everyone started to protect them but they made a lot. And then tell me what happened more recently with manufactured scarcity and where we are today.
1: That's part of the allure of it being an asset uh, class because you know you can buy 10,000 shares of Facebook, but you don't, don't really take possession of the shares. Nobody really does that nowadays. And so if somebody comes over and you go, well, I got 10,000 shares of Facebook, big deal, but you don't have anything to show me uh, as opposed to, yeah, I have a Mickey Mantle jersey from 1964. It's on the wall over there and it was signed by him that's something that's eye-catching and a conversational piece. So people like the investment part of that and be able to show people. Mm -hmm. As far as um, the vintage things, you're right, uh, things back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, when they produced those things, the kids didn't take care of them like they do nowadays. Uh, A lot of the things that were lost actually during the war and the paper drives. So a lot of those things went out, you know, beside the mothers threw them out, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that lowered the Um, availability of what's left. And of course, the scarcity on the higher end stuff is very, very scarce. And you can see that in the population reports on these uh, grading companies. Uh, Junk wax, what happened in that era there is that the card companies, and and I'm a guy that thinks 75 and and prior is vintage. I go with that number. But what happened in the uh, early 80s, uh, the the card uh, market really was heating up, 81 and so forth. And then in in about 83-ish, mid-80s up until the early 90s, the card companies just overproduced like crazy. Uh, They were just cranking it out. And so therefore, there was so much uh, material on the the market, it's a supply and demand issue. So the supply was way uh, outnumbering the demand. So there was a drop in value, especially in the junk wax era. It's starting to come back a little bit now because of the people that like to open up and do breaks and things like that. And so some of this stuff is starting to finally, you know, get off the shelves, but there is so much of that stuff produced. And so the card companies figured out how to alleviate that or how to avoid doing that by producing a little bit less, but also uh, taking advantage and doing what, what I call the manufactured rarities or the chase cards. So what they would do is they would insert in the packs that they wanted to sell, you know, obviously their boxes and their cases, they would insert a one of five or one of 10, one of a hundred, whatever, a card, and it would be labeled as such. And some cases it would be signed. So some of these cards have skyrocketed in value. And that's some of the stuff that you see on this, you know, four or $5 million stuff is a one of one or one of like Tom Brady, for example, he's the goat in football. And so they've got his rookie card as one of a hundred. And if it's graded right and is it's a signed card and the signature's also graded on it, you know, some of them have gone for four or five million dollars. So it's just uh very expensive stuff on the new stuff that's in my opinion a manufactured rarity versus the older stuff that's you know was produced and probably great numbers in some cases, but so much of it was thrown out by the mothers or the paper drives during the war that there's just the scarcity of what's out there, availability from a supply and demand mm-hmm.
0: issue. Okay. You also talk a lot about memorabilia uh, beyond cards. And I, I think that's something that's a lot less understood. There's a lot less um, knowledge, but it certainly seems to be a, a burgeoning, growing area. Um, tell us some of the differences or pros and cons, rather, of sports cards compared to, to um, you know game-used items, et cetera, uh, just on a high level.
1: Well, that's true. There's uh, sports cards. And sports cards are not only baseball, football, basketball, hockey, but it's golf, it's uh, soccer. it's it is, There's everything out there nowadays. And the memorabilia itself is either the jerseys or the balls or bats or helmets or gloves or spikes, shoes, sneakers, whatever. Uh, some of them are game used. Uh, they're authenticated. There are companies that authenticate these things and so if you, and most of these are one of one type situations, uh, recently they've got like a Seth Curry, you know, his Jersey that he wore in the game that he broke the three point, uh, uh, shooting mark, you know, something like that is fairly valuable. They, they just nowadays, the new stuff, they authenticate stuff right away. They have, uh, you know, markings on things like if someone's going to like, uh, Like when Barry Bonds broke the home run record, they had balls that were uh, numbered and they specifically gave those balls out to the pitchers when he came to bat. So they, they, they knew the right stuff, you know, as far as that was the item that was hit for the home run and so forth and so on. So these items of memorabilia are getting more expensive and I think rightfully so. Um, some of the jerseys out there that are, that are just, um, uh, you know of Hall of Famers, especially deceased Hall of Famers. You know, as we've talked about, Greg. You know, a Hall of Famer, even though uh, you know their career is over, their life may not be over. So, somebody, I'll give you an example. You just throw out one name: O.J. Simpson. Okay. So obviously, everyone knows what he did, and and the thing from you know twenty five, almost twenty seven years ago. Um, he's you know been retired for a long time but he's still alive so somebody like hank aaron who recently passed away never had any uh things like that to go on in his life he's in the record books he's uh it was a great hero and so things like that any of his items any jerseys uh bats signed balls whatever have increased in price since his passing and the only one that's left out there that's really in that uh, era or time frame is Willie Mays. Willie is in my opinion one of the best ball players that ever lived. Uh, he's about 91 years old now. I'm not sure how much he's going to live. Uh, he obviously he's in I think failing health, but uh, hopefully he'll stick around a while. But when he passes his stuff will, will increase as well. So you, if you're looking for an investment, you know, that type of thing, is to look for obviously the Ruths, the Garricks, you know, the people that passed away many years ago. If you can get anything of of theirs, obviously it's very expensive. And very desirable.
0: Yeah, I think uh, on Mays, uh, I used to think Hank Aaron was the greatest of all time. I think right now I'd probably put, it's either Ruth or Mays in my book, and then Hank Aaron, number three. But those three are, in my estimation, perhaps the best of all time. But you could debate that endlessly. So
1: Aaron was one of my favorite ballplayers of all time, but I'm not sure he was the best. Yeah.
0: But. Let's talk about the all-important third-part grading companies, such as PSA, um, which might be the gold standard in terms of fetching the highest prices. Um, mm-hmm. Just briefly tell, tell listeners how it works in terms of people sending in a card, what happens They get it mailed back, take some time, et cetera, but the importance of that and the population count, et cetera. Uh,
1: there are uh, four major uh, companies that grade cards now. You mentioned PSA. They're probably the most popular one. They stand for professional sports authenticators. They started in 1981. The other grading services are BGS, which stands for Beckett Grading Services, and they started in 1999. And SGC, Sports Card Guarantee Corporation, started in 1998. And the recent entry is CSG, Certified Sports Guarantee. They're fairly new to card grading, although they've been grading coins and comics for quite some time. So you would submit a card or a group of cards into one of these uh, authenticators, and they would charge a fee for their service. And they would grade the card usually on a scale one to ten. Some have half scales and things like that. Some grade differently, like CSG grades on surface and things like that. Um, So they grade. They the grades are obviously based on the clarity of the card, the corners, is it centered correctly or not, is there any print marks on it, and things like that. And you get back the grade, and it's uh, graded whatever one to ten, let's say, and it's in a sealed case, which is very hard to break, although you can't break them out. Uh, and then you have a whatever card, you know, greater an eight, let's say. And if it's a older, um, you know, vintage card, especially if a superstar, you know, that's a pretty good card. And there's prices uh, that are listed in the, uh, like PSA, for example, has a pop report, which is a population report, how many ones, twos, threes, fours, five, they've graded, and they also have a pricing guide to go by. Although a lot of the guides uh, don't go up to ten; they go up to eight or nine, depending upon the, the year and the uh, uh, the sport. So, but there are some out there that are obviously tens, and obviously those uh, grade very high. It's almost I've all described oftentimes uh, to people that it's almost like on a Richter scale. You know, it's a, like a factor of ten every time it goes up from eight to nine mm-hmm. to ten. And it just goes parabolic up to 10. It's just an unbelievable rise. So a lot of the companies that they were inundated uh, over the pandemic because people were submitting so many cards, they just got inundated with millions of cards. They had to shut down the submissions and hire a bunch of people to start uh, grading their cards. They're catching up, but they're still not caught up yet. They're still uh, submissions that they don't take, uh, lower end submissions they do. Uh, they've opened it up for some of the higher end submissions, and so they're still hiring people and grading. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of activity in the market. Obviously PSA, uh, their parent company, Collectors Universe was uh, uh, bought out and went private uh, by Nat Turner. He became the CEO, uh, displacing Joe uh, Orlando, who was there for many years. So there's been a lot of activity in the market. Um, a lot of fractional ownership companies have come up as well. You want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, well, now? I just
0: wanted to uh, go amplify a little more on p- the uh, grading and, and the impact it had on the on the hobby. So one one important aspect of getting cards graded is when it, it put the dollar amounts higher for those in excellent condition. And for people selling on eBay, where there's a lot in, as well as other online auctions, it removed trust from the equation, which was a good thing in this case because there was a world of a difference in terms of uh, value, often between like a seven and a 10. Um, but many people wouldn't per se pick that up on a computer monitor. Um, and then some people might just say, oh, it's mint, it's near mint, when really it's very good, excellent and what have you. So that created a lot of friction, if you will. And once the grading companies put hard tangible numbers onto this, it added a load of liquidity to the market and a load of visibility, and it really instilled in a tremendous amount of confidence. At the same time, though, uh, PSA graders, or any grader, they're not perfect, right? You can see something, maybe that's a nine, and it's a little more off-center than it should be for a nine. So sometimes people can be very savvy and detect little inefficiencies and take advantage of them, and there's a saying, you know, buy the card, not the grade, and- some people do that but the the number is still is still paramount um, but I but the impact again of the grading companies uh, has been really vast and just added so much to, to the hobby
1: it really has Greg and I mentioned that in my paper as well that when the grading companies started to come in in the early 90s it really gave a lot of credence to the whole hobby and it did uh, solidify people's uh, being able to you know, buy cards and feel comfortable about the grade, and and it was authentic versus maybe a fake or something like that. Yeah. So you're you're absolutely correct about that. Um, and there is subjectivity in, in the grading. Uh, you can look at two eights, and you can see maybe one's a little bit better than the other one. So there is some subjectivity to it. Some people have bought lower ended graded cards and broken them out and resubmitted, and sometimes they have to resubmit them several times, but it, they may eventually get another grade higher, which obviously would be a significant uh, dollar amount, depending
0: upon the right, card. Right. And also, although it's generally advisable to buy, buy higher um, you know, higher graded cards when you can, um, there are times when, j- just like with stocks, there, there could be overvalued and undervalued. A PSA 3 might be a great deal, right, depending on who it is. So, And a PSA 10 may be vastly overpriced. So you really have to know how to navigate and be careful not to get ripped off.
1: Well, that's a very good point. I, I did some uh, uh, data things on PSA uh, over the weekend, and I've got some numbers here I can go through with you, uh, just uh, about m- vintage versus modern cards. For example, a uh, 1986 FLIR Michael Jordan rookie card, currently it, it's in the two to $300,000 range, and it has about 321 10s, and this is mm-hmm. PSA graded 10s, out of almost 23,000 submissions. Which is a 1.4 percent total grade that uh tens out of the cards that are submitted on PSA, and if you look at like for example in 1969 Lou Alcindor card rookie card who is now known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, on the PSA Pop Report there's two tens out of a little over 4,000 submissions for a 0.05 hmm. percentage of tens on PSA, and that's that card. Uh, my recollection is one card as a 10 sold for about half a million back in, I think, 2017. And I believe the last sale was around the 350 range a couple of years ago, I think, if my memory serves me right. But the data was not on the PSA website when I last checked, and it usually is. I don't know what the, why they took that off. But other examples, uh, an example I always give is the 1951 Bowman Mantle card and the Mays card, both of which are their true rookie cards, and they're both high-number cards in the 1951 Bowman series. And high-number just, and as an only, aside,
0: high-number just means it was a
1: little scarcer, right? Fewer were made. What happened is uh, the card companies produced a series of, mm-hmm. let's say, baseball series. Let's say they maybe did five series back then. I don't know how many there were, but... And each series, uh, what happened is the 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 grocery store at the corner would not order another case if they still had boxes on the shelves back in say August so they you know the series that came out last was probably August September and they wouldn't get the order because they had you know the candy store on the corner would still have boxes left and they didn't want to have them out there during football season you know because baseball season would be over so they knew that so they didn't order as many so they didn't produce as many on the later series in most cases, mm-hmm. okay? And that stopped in 1973. But, you know, prior to that, they always had these series. So, yes, a high-number series would generally be more expensive. There's a, a 1957 tops baseball. There's a middle series that's a little bit more rare. But other than that, usually the last series in a, in a set is more valuable. So, in 1951, uh, the Bowmans uh, made the last series and had Mantle and Mays. They were rookies that year. and That's their true rookie card in uh, 1951. And then in Mandel's case, uh, there's only one PSA 10 out of 2,425 submissions for a 0.04% rate. And in Mazes' case, there's zero 10s out of a little over 2,000 submissions. So if you flip over to 1952 and go to tops. A lot of people love the 52 mantle tops as his rookie tops card, but it's not really his true rookie card, but people think it is in 52. And that's a high number card also. And the 52 high number tops cards, as we mentioned, uh, or I know we talked about this before, I don't know if I mentioned this, but Cyberger, who ran tops uh, in 1959, decided he needed some warehouse space and he took all his 52 tops high number cases that he hadn't been able to sell put them on a barge, and dumped them in the Atlantic Ocean. So that's why the 52 Tops high numbers are very rare series. And Mantle happens to be the first card in the high number series in 1952. But it also happens to be a double print in that series, where, like, Jackie Robinson is not. So there's twice as many Mantles as there are Jackie Robinsons out there. But Mantle, of course, is highly praised. And there happens to be three PSA 10s, mantles in 1952 out of 1,810 submissions for a 0.06 rate. Now, it's believed to be that these three tens uh, came from a Paris, Tennessee fine that uh, Mr. Mint, Al Rosen, found in the 1980s. And he found a unopened case or a partial unopened case in Tennessee back in the 80s. And most of the unopened wax packs from 1952 and the very high-graded 52 tops, high numbers, Cards came from that uh, one uh, case that was found by him. So there's, uh, for example, 1952 Tops' Willie Mays card, which is a semi-high number, not a high number, only has one PSA 10 out of 2,581 submissions. So it's they're very rare. Especially that high grade, mm-hmm. almost even a common card back then in a high grade could be four or five hundred dollars yeah. easily.
0: Yeah, well, I, and, and also before we touch on um, fractional shares into in the present day, I do. I could you just briefly talk about unopened wax because I think it's astonishing the percentage gains that were to be had um, by simply not opening the cards in the box, leaving them in the packs. Because if you think about it, the vast majority of people would rip them open you know throw away the wrappers etc um so there's a really really lucrative market for unopened packs e- even going back to the early 70s i mean i think some of that might go for ten thousand or more depending on the set and sport um can you add any color to that correct
1: yeah sure absolutely you're absolutely right um the cards that are you know still in the boxes still you know haven't been opened are very valuable uh in most cases you know the junk wax era that's kind of an offshoot but uh Basically, you're right, in the 70s, 60s, or whatever, if you've got cards back that, that far and that are unopened, uh, people are clamoring for these things. There are what are called uh, breaks, which uh, you can see uh, on the internet, they, they do breaks and they do it live on the internet where someone, you know, say, like, I saw one, I think it was uh, from the National last year, which I was at. They uh, filmed it. Uh, they opened up a 1969 Topps basketball uh, unopened uh, package. I think it had 10 cards in it and there was a, like a giveaway thing as well. So there's 11 spots to buy. So the 11 people purchased you know, the various spots and they'd open it live on camera and the first card would come out and it would be somebody and that would be whoever bought that spot. That's how they do these things. But yes, the, the um, unopened wax uh, is just really a very, very hot item now. And especially the newer stuff, too, because there's stuff that are, you know, these manufactured rarities are in some of these uh, packs. And so people are clamoring for these right. things. I bought, I bought just as an aside, I bought a, a 1977 box back in 1977 with a buddy of mine. And it was like, I don't know, nine bucks or something like that. And I kept it. I just left it and kept it. And then about uh, 15 years later, I was at a show with him. And I said, I'll bring this. You know, I'll sell it. You know, I said, I'll sell it for 500 bucks. And I didn't care if I sold it. And uh, a couple of times, this one kid came by the, the table and he offered me 300 bucks. And then he came back, offered me 400. And I, I turned it down every time. And I my buddy looked at me like I was crazy because he knew what I paid for. it. Mm-hmm. I was
0: with him. And
1: uh, I ended up selling it for 500 bucks. But that that box today is worth about $3,000. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's
0: pretty wild. And there are, you know, some... Um people, unfortunately, who will try to open packs, actually, the wax ones, remove the valuable cards and carefully reseal them. Uh, there is, what's the, I forget the company, but there's one that's best known for authenticating that the wax is has never been opened. Do, do you know that?
1: Yeah, I think it's baseball card exchange. Right,
0: exactly. Um, so that's a little pitfall, but there are certain packs like cellophane and uh, the, the, the rack packs, which are like a longer plastic one, which are presumably much harder To tamper with. Uh, Yeah. Correct. Right. Um, That's right. Well, great. Now let's go to the present day. Uh, Fractional shares. Tell me about companies like Collectible, what this is um, compared to what we were talking about, the traditional version of just simply holding the card in your hand. Okay.
1: So the fractional share companies, uh, as you know, uh, Collectible.com is one of them. There's Rally, there's Alt-ALT, there's Dibs, there's Otis. There's probably some others I don't even know about. Uh, they're similar to, there's one for the art market as well. There's a masterworks.io for art market fractional shares as well. So, and I think that's a fairly new company as well. I don't know that much about them, but these fractional share companies, uh, attain a a high end piece of memorabilia and they sell, uh, fractional shares like Mm -hmm. stock shares, for example. So they'll, for example, get a, um, piece of memorabilia, maybe that's valued at uh, 1.2 million dollars. And they'll sell five or $600,000 worth of shares at a certain price, maybe like a $10 or something. And sometimes they limit the number of shares the client can buy to 10 or 20 or whatever. And they usually sell out pretty quickly. But what you're buying and they don't sell the entire piece. They sell usually up to maybe 50%, maybe a little bit less. And the person that consigns the item to the company retains usually 51 or so percent of the item and they decide on what they what they think they'll sell the shares for and so if it's a 1.2 million dollar item for example and they'll sell five hundred thousand, and then they're buying the people are buying shares to assume that someone's going to come in and pay a higher price than what that item is valued for and so if somebody comes in from the outside and does a private sale and says, I like that item. I want to pay a million and a half dollars for it, for example. And then they put uh, uh, information out to the shareholders and they vote on that as to whether they should take that offer or not. And depending upon what the offer is, and sometimes they'll sell it, sometimes they won't. So there's been a lot of these things popping up lately. Uh, The people that buy the shares, it's like buying shares Mm -hmm. of stock you don't own the item and you're never going to get to keep the item and hang it on your wall or show it to your friends, but you're participating in hopefully uh, selecting something that may increase in value over time. And some of them have done very, very well. So it's a, it's just another angle of the market and it's just uh, exploding and expanding. The market itself is going in all directions. And it's that's why I think it's here for the long term. Uh, we mentioned, uh, before on a previous conversation about how long this has been around. And the collecting market has been around for over a hundred years. They started this stuff, but it really started taking off in the, in the late fifties, sixties, and seventies. And I mentioned this mm-hmm. in my paper, uh, going back on the history of the of the market. And I covered the, uh, the grading companies as, as being a, a big influence as to why the market's increased. Yeah. Right, I mean, I think then.
0: that's a really important point, the long history of the hobby, because there are People who might be skeptical say, "Ah, oh, you know, is this another Beanie Babies flash in a pan? What is this?" And and you know, again, to your point, this is a very very long history, and it's really um, come into its own lately in terms of dollar amounts, and as well as data. There's just an explosion of data in terms of how they can examine the market and and add uh, transparency, liquidity, et cetera.
1: Exactly, exactly. You have, um, for example, the. Uh... You know, the superstars playing in the 50s and 60s, you know, the Aarons, the Mazes. They only had four uniforms, four jerseys each year to play with. They had two home and two away. So they have two gray and two white uniforms. And they would be listed on the tail of the shirt, set one and the year of 1964, for example. And so you only had four jerseys that you could have bought in that player for that particular Mm -hmm. year. And so if you can buy... Something like a superstar of that that caliber, like a Mays, Mantle, Aaron, uh, DiMaggio, Williams, and of course Ruth and you know, Garrick, and uh, those younger, you know, older players. If you can buy a uniform, it's almost no matter what you pay, you're going to make money. I mean, I think they're vastly under valued in my opinion and
0: are you and is that mainly for the you know who you're talking about like the tier one stars or even like i don't know a, a hall of famer like luke luke brock or luke appling or someone who's not is, would that hold for all or is it mainly for the top tier
1: no i think i think you know you have obviously tier one tier yeah. two things like that i mean i tier one i would also throw in like a Clementine mm. or jackie robinson mm-hmm. obviously uh but then you've got a tier two maybe like a frank robinson brooke robinson call your you know yeah. that type and i think they'll hold their value and they're not going to cost as much uh, on on those players as the tier 1 mm-hmm. players would but almost almost no matter what you pay you're not going to get hurt obviously if you can buy a year that's a significant year in that player's history or if it was a signed item as well it helps or if it's uh, tagged to you know during that year he it is 500 at home run or whatever i mean and they can go back and there's companies that authenticate uh, from a, a photo uh, standpoint and try to get, you know, photo match the uh, the player's uniform or bad or whatever to, to that particular game. Now, they do a lot of that nowadays with the newer mm-hmm. players.
0: Right. I guess the proving provenance and whatnot is a lot easier nowadays. Cameras everywhere, everything's documented, filmed, et cetera. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, unfortunately, I'm looking at the clock and we're kind of close to running out of time. But um, before we go... Uh, help help the listener figure out, I mean, how to even uh, a, approach this. I mean, everyone has a different shopping budget, right? There's a, 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 literally millions of options in terms of cards, memorabilia. You've pointed the way directionally and quite specifically. But uh, in terms of budget, w- and let's say, make a distinction between the collector and, and the investor and what's the mind frame, you know, the game plan, so to speak, that they should embrace.
1: I think if they're a collector, I would always say buy what you like or what you love if you want to buy it to keep it and you're not thinking about making a profit. So if you have a special team or a player, you want to buy something of theirs. Obviously, the more money you spend, you know, the better item you may be able to get. As far as investors go, I would always advocate uh, buying the most expensive item you can afford and then the highest grade possible. Uh, if it's a card you want to go for the higher grade obviously a 10 is great you know nines are very good so are eights especially in uh, vintage material um, as far as memorabilia goes if it's a signed ball or bat or even a uniform obviously buy the best you can possibly buy and uh, hopefully it'll increase in value there's a lot of balls out there uh, balls are signed by uh, many players in in the tens of thousands so some of them are not as good signatures, you know, the signature itself may not be as crisp as others, but uh, the uniforms and the memorabilia and things like that, there's just a limited supply of those things out there on the market.
0: Okay, great. By the time you hear this podcast, or perhaps soon after, we're going to have a transcript on on our website on Barron's Advisor, um, and we're going to have a link to Howard's white paper where you could read everything about it. It's uh, quite detailed and interesting. But in the interim, how, how could people reach you, Howard, if they want to get in touch?
1: Well, if they'd like to reach me, they can uh, email me. And my email address is H Epstein, and that's E P S T E I N, and then the number 710 at gmail.com.
0: All right. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Um, my guest has been Howard Epstein. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for listening. I'm Greg Bartalis, and I can be reached at greg.bartalis at barons.com you've been listening to The Way Forward. Please subscribe and check out all our podcasts at barons.com forward slash podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Clearbridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with Clearbridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. Clearbridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to
1: clearbridge.com to learn more.